Your company's future success demands agile, flexible, and resilient operations. I'm your host, Daphne Luchtenberg, and you're listening to McKinsey Talks Operations, a podcast where the world's C-suite leaders and McKinsey experts cut through the noise and uncover how to create a new operational reality. Across industries, the great cleanup is underway. Driven by tightening regulations, pressure from investors, and shifting customer preferences, companies are striving to reduce the burden of their activities on the planet. Conventional wisdom has always been that reaching for net zero is a holy grail, only possible through heavy investments on the one side and sacrificing margins on the other. However, environmental responsibility doesn't have to be at odds with productivity and by extension profitability. I'm joined today by John Reves, Director of Net Zero Transformation at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, and McKinsey's own Peter Spiller and Ruth Huss. And we're going to challenge the notion that environmental sustainability comes with a trade-off. Welcome, everyone. John, let me start with you. You represent an organization of more than 200 companies with high ambitions to pursue sustainability and decarbonization. If you reflect on the last 12 months, how has the attention on sustainability changed from the point of view of business? That's a great question. And the way we look at it in our organization is that sustainability has really gone mainstream, uh, meaning that it's now affecting the many rather than the few. The pressure points on business are getting more complex than ever before. We all know that. It's no longer just about financial performance that business has to manage. But If that is not difficult enough, there's now real pressure from the outside, whether it's activists, legal threats, whether it's competition trying to transform businesses faster than companies that your colleagues and um, listeners may be involved in, whether it's capital markets that are beginning to ask questions or consumers that are beginning to ask for more sustainable products, whether it's the risk profile of a business, the unpredictability in supply chains, or the regulatory risks of changes that are coming towards business. Sustainability is now everywhere. It has gone mainstream. And as a key example of that, as an organization with over 200 members, at COP26, we had more CEOs participating actively in the program and contributing to the work than we've ever had before. It's really encouraging to see that shift in focus, right, John? Can you give some examples of some of the innovations that companies are now talking about when it comes to decarbonisation? So innovation is definitely part of it. But the, the innovation is coming because companies and the conversation has moved from why we need to engage in exactly, as you say, how do we operationalize this? Um, the commitments that society expects leadership to take. So in this decade of action, it's really imperative that every company deals with its impact on climate change, biodiversity loss, and mounting inequality. And these actions will anticipate and connect with our customer demand. And regulations are being put in place and capital markets that are using this ESG information to actually allocate their, their capital. And innovation cycle is right at the heart of that. Maybe we'll go into some examples later, but that's the underpinning. Yeah. Thanks for that, John. Ruth, I wanted to come to you because you're working day to day with business leaders and it feels like they are moving fast and accelerating. What are some of the biggest actions you've seen in the private sector that are really helping to make a step change? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Daphne, in that observation. And just to give you a few numbers, uh, just in the last year alone, more than 1,400 businesses committed to SBTI targets that were more than ever committed before. And just in the first three months of this year, it's already 500. That shows us a bit like the trajectory that we are on. And people also at the same time have initially committed themselves to achieve targets in 2050, which is quite a long way out. But since we all realize and notice that we must be much quicker, we also see that people are pulling forward the targets. Yeah? So uh, I work a lot in the automotive industry. Targets are being set for as early as 2030 at the moment to be completely net zero across their own operations, but also in the, the supply chain and obviously also in the uh, lifetime of their products. I think it's absolutely fair to say that businesses are accelerating and that also, John already mentioned it, yeah, that there's a lot of push from consumers and uh, banks and uh, financial institutions, but there's also a push within the value chains yeah, so that the companies who are closer to the consumer actually ask their suppliers to do much more in terms of climate change. So I think that's a great movement we see at the moment. Yeah. You know, and we're seeing so many countries announcing bans on the sale of fossil fuel powered cars, for example, over the next three decades, with Norway imposing the rule. And I think they said that they would start that in 2025, which is, you know, just around the corner, let's face it. And then, of course, Peter, I wanted to bring you into the conversation in Germany, where you're based. You know, the Supply Chain Care Obligations Act is really requiring organizations to ensure that their direct and indirect suppliers meet the broad broad range of environmental and social standards. And again, they've set a target for 2023, so right around the corner. How are you talking to clients about that? And what type of change is needed to make real progress to hit some of these targets in these industries? So the change is obviously massive. And let me try to put this into perspective. Carbon emissions increased steadily since the Industrial Revolution. We emitted 1,200 gigatons of CO2 all the way since man set foot on the planet until 1980. In the next 40 years, so from 1980 to 2020, we basically emitted another 1,200 gigatons of carbon emissions. And now we have half of this left, so 600 gigatons until 2050 to meet the 1.5 degree Paris pathway. So basically emissions have to fall off the cliff uh, over the next couple of years. There's a couple of practical indicators of what this would have to mean until 2030. We have to completely change how we power and fuel our lives. So we have to tenfold the amount of renewable electricity that we are using from one terawatt to 10 terawatt. We need to get 250 million electric vehicles on the street. Yeah, We have 15 now. So Peter, what kind of operational changes can businesses expect? We have to build a completely new industry in carbon capture and storage. Uh, 40 megatons of CO2 are currently abated through CCUS. It has to be 1,700, yeah, 40 times that. So these are all massive operational changes in existing businesses. And these are build-ups of completely new industries and completely new operations as well. Now, there's a couple of things that like really make the difference here. Regulation uh, is one, yeah, and you mentioned a few uh, regulations already. So banning uh, internal combustion engine uh, uh, cars, carbon pricing mechanisms, cap and trade schemes, and so on. I mean, they are needed and make a difference. 
companies make commitments, but they also need to track. Yeah, what you don't measure, you don't really manage. So a lot has to happen on this uh, dimension of tracking emissions in value chains. We need real demand signals, yeah, a premiums being paid, consumer demand, growth in more sustainable businesses. And probably most important, we need to work together and form alliances. No single company on the planet can uh, decarbonize alone and become sustainable. You absolutely have to work with your peers, with your suppliers, with your customers to get something done. That's such a critical point, right? The point of building alliances, working together as part of an ecosystem. And John, I wanted to come back to you. Of course, that's where the World Business Council for Sustainability or Sustainable Development really comes in. Can you talk a bit more about the role of alliances and partnerships in, um, in tackling these big targets? With pleasure. You know, the reason that many companies join WBCSD is because they want to start addressing some of these bigger systemic issues and decarbonization is definitely one of those. The pressure felt by companies obviously affects the electricity and, and the fossil fuels that they are burning themselves. But the majority of a company's carbon emissions are part of their upstream supply chain. So within um, the language of the greenhouse gas protocol, it's what's called scope three. And there are challenges around dealing with scope three because you have to ensure that you calculate consistently. Um, you need to start moving from industry average data to really granular primary data at product level. And then lastly, you need to ensure there's a system to access that data from and across complex value chains. And so without this data transparency, accelerated decarbonation is going to be really hard um, to happen. Differently put, you can't track and reduce what actually you're, you're not measuring. And that comes to one of the big projects we currently have called the Carbon Transparency Partnership, rallying key stakeholders in the ecosystem to jointly work on resolving this challenge to achieve full transparency of carbon emissions across value chains. Um, and this partnership is joining the dots and creating alignment on the way forward and we're doing that um, in many different parts of the ecosystem. So just to mention a few, you know, we're working together with policymakers, with academia, with the key technology players, uh, with auditors, with some major supply chain actors, because they're the ones that have the use cases, and with industry associations, with standard setting bodies, uh, with target setting and reporting bodies. And you can see this is a big ecosystem and uh, we're working within it to try and drive forward this work on primary scope three data. Very interesting. You know, Ruth, I wanted to come back to you to um, talk about how business leaders need to think about this. And when they consider the prioritization, they're obviously always thinking about the trade-off between cost measures and decarbonization. Is there a middle ground to be found there? So maybe you know that there is a fantastic instrument uh, which is called the abatement curve, uh, which exists for industries, uh, but also for products. And uh, this actually exists since uh, more than 10 years by now and has been obviously refreshed over the last years a lot. If I look at that instrument, it basically tells me one third of all the emission reductions is actually cost positive. Yeah? So when you implement these measures, costs are being saved. And the only thing that sometimes keeps companies back is because there's an 
investment needed up front yeah, to realize some of those. The investment will be recovered. The, the key question here is how fast. Coming back to the curve, there is another third of the measures which is cost neutral. So altogether we are now at uh, two thirds, which are typically either cost positive or neutral. So from my point of view, things that we absolutely must implement. And then there's another third, which today is still expensive. And for example, coming to a topic that we currently work quite a lot on, on the question of how we, for example, decarbonize some of the basic materials like steel, that is a completely new process. And in order to industrialize this process, we need to have takeoff agreements. We need to collaborate across the value chain, as John and Peter already uh, mentioned. And then when we have enough scale in this technology, we will obviously also overcome at some point in time the current cost disadvantage of some of those ideas but we need to in the initially pay more yeah? and and i think that's a challenge ahead that we even if some of those measures are not yet fully industrialized we need to leap now uh, in order to overcome the problems in, with the co2 that we currently have thanks for setting that out so clearly ruth john i know another initiative that you're spearheading is the sos 1.5 campaign can you talk a little bit more about it and what some of the early achievements have been so SOS 1.5 stands for Safe Operating Space uh, 1.5, which, of course, is also a call for urgent action. And in that, we bring together uh, the world's leading sustainable companies to accelerate climate recovery and work collaboratively on some of these system change issues. We look at the work in two ways. Firstly, we support um, capacity building within the organizations. And we do that through masterclasses and through an opportunity of safe spaces where companies can be honest about their challenges and learn from each other and create tools and uh, publications that help and support others on their decarbonization journey. Uh, we've established a clear 1.5 roadmap for companies um, which looks at um, six different areas and their different levels of maturity as they engage their internal organization um, to drive this change. We also do work on climate accountability. And um, one of the basic parts of that is the greenhouse gas protocol climate standards, which is used by over 90% of multinationals. That document is good. It's the best we've got. It's a voluntary standard. And WBCSD is a co-convener of the uh, protocol together with WRI, the World Resource Institute, in order to make sure that it consistently provides the guidance that's necessary for companies as they are looking to disclose and report on the progress they're making. You asked about some early achievements. I, I mentioned the Carbon Transparency Partnership earlier, pulling together all of this work and our members at COP26 last year, we were able to launch an allocation methodology for how you can attribute an organizational scope, th uh, scope three emissions to an individual product. That, again, is a voluntary guideline. And um, the intention, and similar to the greenhouse gas protocol, is that others will take it up and it will be ended up being referenced um, in regulations and in policy. 
But for the first time, that allows a consistent way for companies to correctly allocate their carbon emissions. So lots of good work going on. Fantastic. And lots more to do, um, I'm sure. Uh, Peter, Ruth alluded to this, you know, there's um, enormous amount of investment capital, right, that's, that's going to have to be channeled into climate change accelerators. Where do you see some of the biggest momentum, both in industries and geographies? We estimate that $9 trillion per year, on average, have to get invested between now and 2050 to make kind of climate change uh, not happen, to get to decarbonization until 2050. This is three and a half trillion per year on top of what we are investing anyway. All the rest is basically shifting investments away from fossil fuels and so on into into other uh, areas. And this is seven to eight percent of GDP. So indeed, the numbers are massive. The financial flows in debt and equity, they reflect this uh, already. We see this clearly. So, So for example, sustainability debt instruments like green loans and green bonds have grown 60% per annum over the last five years. The US, Germany, China are the biggest markets on this in terms of regional perspective. So the capital market is basically shifting and they are putting their bets into sustainability. Different sectors are very unevenly exposed. This is important to notice. If you take fossil fuels that are responsible for 80% of global emissions, they have to shrink by 70-80% and be replaced by hydrogen, by renewable electricity, by biomass. If you're in coal and oil, this is going down. Yeah, That's for sure. At the same time, if you're wind and solar, you have to double, triple your capacities basically over the next couple of years. Take mobility. The path to electric vehicles is very clear now. New battery factories need to build up. OEMs are looking for green steel, um, nickel and other materials. Lithium will be very relevant, uh, need to get mined. So there's a massive change in like the portfolios uh, that's happening. Take agriculture. There's even bigger changes. We, we estimate that tens of millions of jobs have to shift away from meat production into plant-based proteins, where we see tons of startups and also established companies expanding their, their portfolios. And then there's obviously the whole new energy sector and carbon capture sectors, where wind, solar, and CCUS capacities have to be, have to be built up and all the operations in line with that. Yeah. Exactly. It's a a big gulp of everybody who needs to make these big moves. Ruth, I wanted to kind of come back to you. This particular podcast channel is um, really addressing an audience of operations leaders. And, you know, we often talk about the importance of making the connection between the board vision and the front line. And, you know, we've talked about how, you know, CEOs and leadership teams have been setting bold aspirations and visions. But really, it's, it's in the operations that we make these things happen, right? What role do you see for people who have roles, leadership roles in operations today? So Peter already perfectly spoke about what uh, role of operations will actually play in this transition. Yeah, So we heard him speak about companies buying green materials. So the purchasing function will uh, play a huge role, especially for those uh, sectors that uh, buy things and then process it along the way before they resell it, yeah? mainly consumer goods and uh, automotive. But obviously also in many other 
industries, manufacturing will play a key role. Yeah, For example, in pharmaceuticals, in chemicals, yeah? um, there's all kinds of processes that need to be decarbonized. So that is another angle. And not to forget uh, one important piece, yeah? we will see a huge capex wave coming over us. Yeah? So investments which are needed for building all those uh, decarbonized supply chains and operations for battery plants, as Peter explained. And the the cheaper we can actually build this uh, green infrastructure, the cheaper or the transition also is, yeah, and the faster it can get done, yeah. So I think there's a huge demand for for operations in terms of cost reduction for the transition, but also in speeding up for the transition. If you just think about, we need to build 10 times more the capacity in solar and wind every year than we did before. yeah. So how should that go if the operations folks don't really speed up their processes in that? Let me build on top uh, uh, with one point here. I mean, what we see our clients do a lot now is they not only look for cost reduction, they not only look for carbon reduction separately, they look for dual mission. Yeah, They really try to hammer down cost and carbon at the same time in integrated programs because there's a lot of synergies, in fact, in doing this. You, know, you start with like baselining carbon emissions and costs. You look at the different levers and many levers, in particular, if they relate to energy efficiency, basically uh, cover both. You know, they reduce cost and they reduce carbon. And then people put tracking and execution mechanisms in place that really hum down on both of these uh, different missions in integrated programs. Yeah. Love that. John, let me um, leave us with a final thought from you. In the, the next two to three years, wh where are some of the imperatives? I know you've gone through quite a lot of the infrastructure and some, some of the key initiatives that are being driven. But, you know, when we're talking face-to-face -to, -face to our audience, the lasting thought you'd like to leave with them? I would love to you know, give us all the collective challenge that we not only have to resolve for this climate crisis, you know, there is a serious biodiversity um, crisis and there's this looming challenge of inequality. And actually the opportunity is that we have an economic system that ensures that our incentives and the global accounting standards and the capital market valuations no longer are just based on the financial performance of business, but integrates the impact on the planet and people as part of how we define success and determine enterprise value. And I think we're on that road already, but there is so much to be done. Indeed. John, thank you so much. And it just occurs to me that, you know, we're not doing this in a stable environment, right? The surroundings are ever more volatile. And Ruth, you know, how should we be thinking about that? What are the imperatives, you know, for moving forward while we try and navigate this environment? So I believe when you look especially at what happened to us in the last years with Corona and also now the geopolitical uh, tensions that we see, that we need to be much more flexible in uh, adjusting our supply chains. And going forward, that will probably also be needed because of uh, severe weather and other climate implications that we will face. Yeah? And I think especially for our colleagues in purchasing and supply chain, just being a lot quicker, more agile, having more options and potentially also having things a bit closer to home to avoid long transport distances is something that we completely can rethink now in this decade. Yeah, Ruth, I can, I, I'm happy to build on that because 
you know, we see our members shifting their focus to create more resilient supply chains. And COVID was the start of it. And we know with the current, the war in, in, uh, taking place in Europe, this is, you know, really going to focus people's minds. Now, business faces a choice, massive supply chain disruptions. And the focus is shifting from no longer just being lowest cost, but how do we build resilient and more adaptable systems that are going to support us in the future. And I guess a a great example of that is a choice of whether we start now reinvesting back into fossil fuels or reinvesting into renewable energy sources. Let me thank our guest today. John, thank you for making the time. I know you have a very busy day job. And so we really appreciate you giving this a little bit of your time. John, Ruth, Peter, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating discussion. We've only just scratched the surface and there's clearly so much more to dig into. I know, Ruth, as the leader of our sustainability efforts in operations, let me leave you with then the final, final word. This decade counts. Yeah, We must make it in this decade. And I think operations must play an important role in accelerating this transition and in really making it happen and implementing it. So let's take it on, would be my final word. And let me say the time is now. Thanks so much, everyone. Really great to have you here today. You've been listening to McKinsey Talks Operations with me, Daphne Luchtenberg. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back with a brand new episode in a couple of weeks.